From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, I speak with Dr. Karen Cox, history professor at University of North Carolina at Charlotte, about the role historians should play in the public discourse. It's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. The recent events in Charlottesville, Virginia, among other things, brought to light the importance of history into the public discourse. Too often, critical issues are debated void of the cynical nature of history and its influence on the present moment. Perhaps nowhere is that more evident than discussions about the Civil War. What does it say that after 152 years since the conclusion of this nation's greatest crisis, its genesis and meaning is still debated. To help unpack the role that historians can play in the public discourse is Professor Karen Cox. Cox is a history professor at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. She is also author of the forthcoming book, Goat Castle, a true story of murder, race, and the Gothic South set in 1930s Natchez, Mississippi. Professor Karen Cox, welcome back to The Public Morality. Oh, I'm happy to be back with you, Byron. You recently uh, wrote a piece that appeared on CNN.com entitled, Historians historians Need to Use Their Power Now. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, So often uh, historians and other people who are in uh, the humanities are often criticized as being irrelevant. And I, I've recently um, had written some op-eds regarding Confederate monuments, but so had other historians, and they um, were basically attempting to educate the public about uh, what these monuments uh, were about. And I, I received a lot of email as a result, and uh, what I noticed in, the, in many of the emails um, was that people seemed really sort of hungry for history. They wanted to understand. They want someone to help guide them through uh, the ins and outs and, and offer them context for what's going on. And, uh, and so I thought it was important to, to say that. Yeah, you mentioned some of the emails. You mentioned several, uh, not the names, but specifically there was, a, uh, I believe, a, a gentleman who was in an interracial marriage and asking you how, how do you negotiate some of that history. Um, a doctor, I think, emailed you. Could you say more about those emails, if you would? Uh, right. Well, um, I, it was so, uh, the doctor, who <laughs> was a neurologist in New York City, uh-huh. wrote me out of the blue after reading something I'd written, and 
he kept trying, and I felt like I, you know, bad about it. But I, I just had so many emails, I just couldn't respond to them after that I wrote about Confederate monuments. So I, rather than try to answer any of them, I didn't answer. I mean, all of them, I just decided not to answer any of them because I couldn't. But he, he continued to write me, and they were very, very thoughtful, um, long emails. They were emails about really were in which he was trying to, it was almost as if he was working through the, the problem himself, the historical problem. And he wanted to, it was clear he wanted to engage me in some sort of discussion about it, and, and not in a, a mean kind of way, you know, but really he was just wanted to understand. And then... The other example I had given there was about, uh, uh, he's a naval officer, I didn't say that, but he was a military officer in an interracial relationship, and he has two, he and his wife have two children, young children, and he wanted, um, and he seemed almost desperate to understand. He he wanted um, to um, understand the role race played, for example, in the coming of the Civil War, and and then what happened afterward. And so, you know, there were other emails along those lines where people were essentially sending me questions and wanted me to answer their questions. And I I just, it was something I couldn't do, obviously, because there's so many of them. But it made me realize that as historians, we have a role to play in in um, helping people understand uh, current events, uh, uh, you know, his, you know that that are happening. I mean, we they think well, they people think we always deal in, in the past, but but um, um, we can help provide that context for um, things like monuments or historical anniversaries or labor movements or uh, slavery and mass incarceration or these sorts of things because they're still in our public consciousness and they are still subjects that um, we discuss and you know in, in the public that's in the public discourse and so I think it's important then that historians use and I when I I didn't give it that title you know that historians should use their power now an editor did that of course they my did. point <laughs> yeah but my point was you know we have an opportunity here um, because uh, contrary to popular uh, uh, belief and some of the uh, opinions that are expressed in various places um, uh, in the media uh, there is a uh, his, history has relevance and uh, history and, and as as uh, most people should know if they don't know already knowledge is power you know I'm, I'm gonna touch on that, that sort of the relevance of history for, for, for a moment if I could you, you know you mentioned uh, in the piece uh, you specifically uh, reference history but I, but I would uh, for this conversation expand it to include all humanities but there, that many see these, uh, as useless pursuits, so I'd like to have you say more about that, if you if you if you would, because my bias is that it's quite the contrary. Correct. Well, I think that um, yeah, I would you know as a historian, I mentioned history specifically, but yes, I would expand that to include all of the humanities. 
I think what, you know, humanities do for us, and, and in my case, history does for us, it it, it helps us to, um, you know, understand the problem, uh, to be able to work through it, to be able to um, analyze it. Um, these are all skills, you know, critical analysis, uh, writing about a good writing, good uh, uh, communication skills that are developed in the in the course of, uh, of of studying one of these disciplines. All of those things are useful and to us in our everyday lives. Whether it's um, you know uh, our ability to have uh, informed discussions, and that I think that's really important that we have informed discussions about topics um, and. Um, and that uh, we, you know, particularly for, in, in my case, for my students who go out to work in public and in, in, in public institutions, whether that's in the school system or whether that's as public historians, those people that work at museums and historic sites, things like that, for example, um, they have a really imp- uh, a very important role to play in helping to educate the public. So it's not a useless pursuit because uh, so many uh, careers rely on uh, the skill set that humanities give us. You know, just fo- following up, I mean, again, um, this is my bias uh, about history, is that doesn't the relevance lie more in why something occurred than simply being able to recant, you know, what happened and I mean, and, and that, is that where some of the value in, in, in the current public discourse and history sort of coalesce? Yeah, I, I think that, yeah, it's not just, oh, this thing happened on this date, and then that's an erroneous, you know, uh, view of history. That's, that's not history. That's just a fact, right? <laughs> right. Um, and so, uh, but, but um, I think what is important is, you know, the context that is being provided and, and the, you know, uh, it's relevant because it helps you to understand the moment in which uh, things happened, um, that they didn't occur in a vacuum um, on this date and this year, you know, and with these particular actors and, you know, historical actors involved. Um, there is, uh, uh there may be a, a you know a pattern to it, or there may have been you know previous attempts at, to do certain things. But I mean, um, you know, like my friend uh, Heather Thompson, who writes and and speaks about mass incarceration, and when we can take this all the way back to slavery, you know, it's slavery, then it's convict lease, and then it's you know, uh, and then you know, it's it's mass incarceration. You know, uh, and so um, we just—I think we have an important role to play. That these these events, even current events, don't occur in a vacuum. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Professor Karen Cox, a history professor at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Uh, professor Cox, in the, and also in the piece that you wrote for CNN.com, you, you you made clear that you supported the civil rights. I'm a civil war, excuse me. There's a Freudian slip. The civil war monuments uh, coming down. Say more about that, if you would. Right, and and this was in um, actually I said that in the other op-eds in the New York Times and the Washington Post. And I do I said I 
I said I advocated for their removal as from where they are. I never said destruction because I think that's a different means mm-hmm. something different. But I did say removal from where they are, particularly when they are as uh, causing divisiveness within a community, because um, uh, a lot of the monuments that are controversial are are ones either in are often in public settings they're either in public parks or they're they happen to be on the grounds of the state capitol or they're at the grounds of the local courthouse um, and so in those places uh, particularly the where government functions in those places in particular there should be they should be removed because um, because it's it just uh, it's sort of uh, an insult to, uh, particularly to African Americans in our community, um, to have these things, um, you know, staring at them as they go in to do business with their government. Because I just feel like, it's, in some ways, it's it's uh, it's you know, and I think when they were originally placed there, suggests that um, uh, they were second class citizens, and what they you know, and their citizenship was not as important as that of the white man. And and so, um, if they're not, you know, and I'm not sure. I mean, there's so many um, solutions being tossed around about what should happen with them. Um, some is like, well, we'll place a plaque with context. Uh, some have said, you know, well, if you're going to have that, let's put a, you know, a monument to um, the uh, the enslaved next to it. Um, and then, you know, and I just, I, I've advocated removal, um, but my thought is to, you know, some of these monuments ought to be corralled into some sort of public park where, you know, they could be interpreted. Um, you know, what, you know, a park, you know, something, not like a public park in terms of something that already exists, but something in which it's created for the express purpose, almost like a park museum, I would say. Where these things could be placed, but they would, they could be interpreted, and you know, a historian or someone could like, you know, take them through that and help them understand these, these artifacts of of the lost cause. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the lost cause. I'm, I'm going to mention that in a minute, but I, I, but before I get to the lost cause, I, I, I'd like um, to get your thoughts. So, what I'm hearing you say though is you don't support. Um, let's say I'm, Byron makes an ad hoc decision that there's a, there's a uh, Civil War monument here in Winston-Salem, and I'm just going to just make an ad hoc decision and just go take it down. That's not what you're advocating for. No, and I, I, I think I've said in one of the pieces is that each, every community has a moral responsibility to take up the subject of removing the monuments. That's what I, I've said. And, you know, there, right now where we, North Carolina operates under a law where you're not, you know, they're not allowed to remove them legally. They can do be illegal like they did in Durham. Right. <laughs> but, but legally, we're not in that situation. But, and I know that Governor Roy Cooper has asked that we, uh, you know, kind of, uh, overturn that law so that something can be done um but that's i mean my my feeling is they you know it's like um what happened in new orleans there was there in their community 
they made a decision, you know, that it was a moral responsibility on their part to remove those monuments. And they did. And Baltimore did the same. And what happened in Charlottesville is interesting because, you know, they had just been talking about it. They hadn't done anything yet. And there was just a discussion. Um, but it is a discussion that's going on in various places around the South. Not all of them, but in, you know, in a number of them. And so uh, my thought is that those discussions should be held and, you know, communities need to decide, you know, the next steps they need to take with regard to those. It's just sort of ironic, though, that if you have this law where you can't remove them, then you can't have the conversation to talk about removing them. And so all that leaves is sort of this uh, emotional impulse to take them down is sort of the only option for people who feel frustrated by their existence. Well, exactly. You know, they, they kind of hamstrung the, the conversation by, dip in, you know, instituting these laws. I think if North Carolina has one. I know Tennessee has one. I'm not sure what all. I haven't looked through to see which mm-hmm. other states have them. Um, because um, it didn't appear that Virginia has one because local communities are trying to decide that for themselves, Richmond even, uh, where those large monuments right. are. Right, right. Uh, the center of town. So, yeah. uh, yes, you're right. It, it inhibits that conversation. I mean, people are having these conversations regardless, but it's, um, yes, it, it, in the absence of being able to do that and, and, and allow a community to do it, uh, legally, you you have what you had in Durham. Uh, so let's talk about the lost cause. Um, what is it? And <laughs> let's talk about and then talk about its impact. Okay. So they don't well, ask you this. They don't ask you this when you're on CNN. So I want you to appreciate <laughs> being on the public morality. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. Here's here's the way I often tell it. Um, the lost cause on the face of it, just simply is a term used to describe Confederate defeat. Confederate, you know, so the law, you know, the South, it is the South lost cause that, that, that it was defeated. That is among whites, Southern whites. And the lost cause is also um, both a, like a movement and involves a narrative. And so the, the lost cause movement goes through a few phases it, in, the, in the immediate years after the after the war civil war the movement was about bereavement trying to you know come to terms with the defeat then after reconstruction in 1877 the mo- it becomes a movement to celebrate the confederacy and that continues in well into the 1890s and when the United Daughters of the Confederacy was organized in 1894, they made the Lost Cause a movement about vindication. And so that, those are the sort of the phases it goes through. Then the narrative, the Lost Cause narrative, is the basics of it are the South fought in the Civil War uh, for states' rights, and not for the defense of slavery, that, you know, their men were heroes, that 
slavery was a benevolent institution that um you know uh they weren't be they weren't traitors to the nation there's some that reconstruction was a you know a uh just insult added to injury <laughs> to the white south um and uh the old and basically it laments the loss of southern civilization and and that and i put put that in quote marks air quotes or whatever southern civilization is really about you know the the old south and the loss of that and, and all of that entailed so there's a it's 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 uh it's a narrative that's uh, that hinges on uh, a mythology about about the South. Well, you know, it's interesting because you, you talk when you try to when the attempt to reshape the narrative in, in the sense of uh, you take slavery for example. Um, I would I've always said that that um, uh, the reason I always the way I always say it is the reason for the war was secession. The reason for secession was slavery. And I mean that's the evidence is there. So I, I'm wondering. Right. I'm wondering how is how has this narrative largely gone, not completely, but largely gone unchallenged. So it's been able to take hold because there's a lot of historical inaccuracies about the narrative. Well, for people who you know, I mean, only want to read what they want to read. You know, you know they've, uh, you know. That's the narrative. But I think, um, I mean, for generations, um, uh, and this has a lot to do with the work of the United Daughters of the Confederacy, they um, made really sure that um, school textbooks, for example, provided that narrative that, you know, so that, that children were learning. And then they had, a, you know, they're, they're to me, Monuments are the least of what of the of the problems that they've caused. <laughs> Monuments are those tan, are tangible, but the intangibles, and I think the more influence that they uh, had on Southern culture was through educating children to believe in that narrative, to defend that narrative, and that went on for generations, long you know, well into the twentieth century. You know, segregationists. You know, abided by that narrative. That's part of the reason they went, you know, sort of made it known that they didn't like desegregation or they stood up to any kind of attempt at civil rights in the 50s and 60s. And even in some uh, schools in Mississippi up through the 1970s, they were still, I mean, that narrative still existed in some of the textbooks. And even today, Texas, the state of Texas today is trying to eliminate slavery as a cause of the Civil War in their textbooks. So this is this is the problem. The problem is that that narrative gets pushed generation after generation after generation, and and uh, for people who you know don't read beyond you know, grade school or high school and, and aren't, you know, trying to know more anymore about it. That's the, that's the narrative that they hold to. One, one of the ironies, we were t- you were talking earlier about the humanities, so I'm assuming 
that these textbooks would be in the field of social studies and history. So, so there you have, you're, you're infiltrating, you know, the, the humanities to promote an agenda. Then, then you say, when you get to college, um, those pursuits are, are uh, irrelevant. So that's kind of a, an irony of, of, of sorts. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's a good point to make. You know, that, I mean, they're also, the, you know, what's problematic about the humanities in public schools these days is that it's all, you know, this standardized testing. That's not, I mean, as I say to my students that come in, you know, as freshmen, history is not multiple choice. It's, it's, it's not, that's not learning history. That's not making you think. That's just memorization. And, and you know, and, and this is why, you know, I feel like in some, you know, I mean, one of the things I mentioned in the, in the piece is like, I can't, I mean, the problem of historical illiteracy is, you know, <laughs> beyond my pay grade. I can't do you know, I don't know, you know, that's like something I can't do by myself. But as one part of that, I can do my part. I can do what I can to try to educate the public. You know, this is why I think historians um, really need to step it up and and talk to communities and be part of community panels and write for their local paper and, and speak about these things and, um, and I was also trying to call out journalists on this, too, because I want them to quit going back to the same people over and over and over again for the answers. Because, that you know, there are a lot of us out there, and we're all, we can all be helpful. And, and I want my fellow historians and fellow humanitarians, I guess that's, that's a different way, my humanists, fellow humanists, to... To get out there and do their part, because um, and not it's not for everyone, but I think there are people that uh, who are untapped talent for that. Well, 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 allow me to assume the role. You're going to be the panelist right now. I'm going to ask you a historical panel question. Are you ready? Well, I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, well, no, since we, we talked about history, and I just kind of wanted to you know unearth some of the the complexity of it, but. Is it um, historically consistent to suggest that the reason for the Civil War, for the reason for the secession, was slavery, but at the same time, that may not have been the dominant reason that those people who did not own slaves fought for the South? Can both those two live in, together? I think. I think they can, except that. Those who didn't own slaves still lived in a slave economy and still participated in a slave economy. And it was, you know, there's been uh, some work, I can't remember, oh, ta Coates' recent uh, piece the, uh, about the first white president or something. I think that's the name of his piece in the Atlantic. Right. And he talks about this, and it's like, and, and so essentially, if they're, they're, those people, even with they don't own slaves, are part of a slave economy, and it's in their best interest 
to that slavery is maintained even if they don't own a slave because if if slavery is is abolished then white and black will be competing labor and so that's you know that's a reason for people i mean on the one hand it's about i'm not saying that you can't say they weren't going to war to defend their their homes and their you know their state and their region but to you can't separate that from the fact that they they were um, they you know they operated in a slave economy whether or not they owned slaves yeah, and, and no in the genesis of my question I was just getting at the one of the um, uh, simplistic arguments that my four parents didn't own uh, slaves oh, yeah. but fought for the but, but fought but fought for the South and just as if you know as if that alone uh, absolves them of participating uh, in an immoral enterprise which is which would be slavery to some degree right because they want to I mean I hear that and I've heard that argument made before well my forefathers you know didn't own slaves that's not why but you know they it 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 also um, it, it it's that's that's where people don't understand the context in which it happened. You know, it that's what I, what I was saying a minute ago. I think no, they they may not have owned slaves. No, they may not have thought that they were going to war for uh, to preserve slavery, but they absolutely were involved. You know, lived in a in a, a region that was based on plantation slavery, and they benefited from it, whether or not they owned them. Because if those, again, if those slaves became free, and this is how white elites play poor whites against blacks all the time, makes sense, well, you're competing with one another. You know, then it's, you know, the reason that you're not doing well economically, if, if that were to happen, you know, slaves were free. Or even today, it's like the reason you're not doing well economically, poor white man, is because uh, you're having to compete against uh, blacks or immigrants or women or you name it. So it's using race or gender in such a way to gloss over sort of a, a larger issue of class where those competing groups might coalesce. Yes. Yes. There, you know, I, I, I'm trying to think where I saw some documentary, I can't remember, and it was something from the 60s where basically, you know, poor whites and blacks were having conversations about what they had in common. I mean, that's this is the thing. It's like, yeah, race has always been used to trump class, and class is where... I mean, if if anything, where people could get together on on issues, but instead they, you know, it's it's like brought up as something that you know you have to. Even if you're a poor white man, you have to establish your superiority over um, the black man, the woman, the immigrant, or who you know. Well, wasn't the fusion movement changing that narrative until it was uh, ultimately taken down? I yeah, 
Yeah, I think they, they got it, right? They understood that. And I think you're right. And then it was, yeah, then it had to be put down. But, it's, you know, because you can't have that happening. You can't, you know. You know, there was and there are people that, you know, if you're going to maintain white supremacy, you can't have uh, poor whites and blacks working together or voting in the, in a, in the same block. Before we let you go, I'm going to read you a quote and have you respond to it. All uh, right. <laughs> see, see you, you didn't know I was going to have uh, you know, these, these pop quiz for the professor. but I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my best. Uh, okay, no, it's fine. I think you'll, you'll be fine. It, it's, it's, um, it's, it comes from John F. Kennedy's um, uh, Yale commencement speech in 1962. Uh, and I think it ties in neatly to what we've been talking about. The great enemy of truth is very often not the lie, deliberate, contrived, and dishonest, but the myth, persistent, persuasive, and unrealistic. Too often we hold fast to the cliches of our forebearers. We subject all facts to a prefabricated set of interpretations. We enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. Now I was wondering, from your perspective, has the post-Civil War myth become this irreversible truth for too many within within the culture to really ever change? First of all, that's a great quote. <laughs> <laughs> Has it become so immersed in our culture that it's, well, I tell you, it's been around since the end of the Civil War, so it's been here. It's embedded in the, in, in the discussion, except... I do think that there are frequent challenges to it. And that's what you're seeing where the monuments are concerned. Because new generations of Southerners, white and black, aren't having it. And I think, you know, this is, uh, uh, and new Southerners, be they, you know, immigrants or transplants from outside of the region are also questioning that narrative. Because the, chat, the, 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 the thing about it is is that um, the demographics of the South are changing. And so these myths don't mean something to someone who's transplanted here or to someone... Um, maybe younger generations of, of whites, for example, who would have been the, the ones normally to, uh, to have imbi- you know, uh, been, you know, drank that, the, you know, the Kool-Aid of the lost cause, right? right? So, so that, that's changed. I mean, I mean, Durham is a weird place because Durham is one of those, you know, yeah, there's a lot of students and folks there, but I do think, you know, younger generations of, students and don't even know what that is. I mean, I can tell you, know, people coming into my class, you know, as freshmen or what, don't, they don't know what the lost cause is. They don't know, they might, it's, it's the same, they wouldn't, they may not recognize it as the lost cause, but they're not, you know, but they, they might say, oh, if it's within their family, you know, history, they may, it may have been passed down to them in some form or fashion. But they're not willing to do, to defend it. I think those people are in the minority. 
because even in Charlottesville, there were so many of those men, and they were most—they were almost all men, white men in their twenties and thirties—who had no connection to the South. Their their issue is a return of white patriarchy, and they may see that in the lost cause, but they—they don't—they're not people who are raised on it. They're not people who. Uh, you know, that's not why they were there. They weren't there to defend the removal of Robert E. Lee. They were there to make a point about white supremacy. But as long as the narrative is perpetuated, uh, we're going to need historians like yourself to unpack those two sort of divergent points uh, so we can have a judicious conversation. I do think so. And I also think I'm hopeful because I don't think it's going to remain as embedded in the culture. I, I really do think that the, that the demographics of the South and, and of our nation are changing, and this is why you're seeing this sort of backlash coming from these different groups. But I do believe that as historians, we can exactly, we can help unpack and help people to understand it. And... Um, you know, and I mean, it's it's just it's important to have informed opinions about these things, and so much, so many times they're uninformed, and that's and this is where I think historians have a role to play. That was Professor Karen Cox. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. closing remarks. Back in 1987, when Vice President George H.W. Bush was preparing to run for the presidency, he was considered to be a candidate who lacked the vision thing. Bush was seen as unable to articulate a vision like that of then-President Ronald Reagan, even as he went on to soundly defeat Michael Dukakis in the 1988 presidential election, the vision thing continued to plague him. Because of the cyclical nature of politics, the vision thing has once again returned. Only this time, it's the Democrats who wear the label. There are two primary challenges facing the Democratic Party. One, they lack a vision. And number two, they do not have a deep bench to carry it out. With the exception of Barack Obama, it was a party over the last eight years that hemorrhaged elected offices at practically every level of government. As the opposition party, Democrats must oppose key issues put forth by the majority, but they must also articulate an alternative vision. It could be argued that President Donald Trump is also without a vision beyond the nebulous campaign slogan, Make America Great Again. But he sits in the Oval Office, shrewdly providing almost daily musings for Democrats to reflexively react as he did recently announcing his decision to roll back DACA and tweet that Japan and South Korea can buy increased amounts of, quote, highly sophisticated, unquote, military equipment. 
Earlier this year, the Democratic Party rolled out a better deal as their agenda for the future. With the power of wet tissue paper, a better deal sounds like a colloquialism for at least I'm not as bad as the other guy. I'm hard-pressed to see how a better deal lights a fire among the apathetic party, the estimated 90 million people who did not vote in the 2016 presidential election. America languishes in electoral purgatory between a Republican Party that cannot govern and a Democratic Party that cannot win. But the party with a plan, no matter how dysfunctional it may appear, is usually in an advantageous position over the party who can only offer dissent. Moreover, dissent without vision is defensive, which equates to losing in political speak. Though tempting to be titillated with excitement, the Democratic Party can ill afford to rely on the president's sagging poll numbers, which mean nothing 14 months before the midterms, and even less 26 months before the next general election. A coherent vision creates excitement, and excitement leads to voter turnout. Democrats appear to be the suitors seeking to catch voters on the rebound. Possessing certain qualities that the previous relationship was lacking is their path to victory, or at least seemingly so. It could work, but rarely do such dynamics produce lasting interactions making the lift even heavier for Democrats in the upcoming midterm elections is the historically low voter turnout. Moreover, the turnout for midterm elections is usually weighted toward older voters who are more likely to vote Republican. Befuddled why voters seemingly vote against their perceived interests will not suffice. Nor can Democrats simply offer a series of 10-point focus group-tested white papers. A better deal has the appearances of a party lurching closer toward that overused quote to define insanity. That is not enough for an ever-growing apathetic party who judges the difference between the two parties only by the thin veneer of their rhetoric. Though difficult, it is not an insurmountable hill that Democrats must climb. But without a clear, concise, and approachable vision that connects the voters, the mission might be for naught. The Democratic Party's vision must be able to understand that what is articulated is not as important as why it's being offered. People vote against their perceived interests because, invariably, it is someone else who is defining what should be important to those voters. American politics is not simply a linear pursuit where victory goes to the candidate with the best ideas. It also requires a visceral connection. Rarely does the candidate who connects with people, lose to someone who does not. What is the rationale for new voters to cast their ballot for the Democrats? If the Democrats' only response to the aforementioned question is a better deal, they are destined to remain on the outskirts of political relevance. But the vision thing is only important if Democrats believe they are to some degree culpable for their current plight. If, however, they believe the 2016 election represented a once-in-500-year election result, they should proceed with a better deal in all it entails. Democrats might do well to read and embrace Proverbs 29.18, where there is no vision, the people perish. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. 
You can also follow me on Twitter as well as Facebook. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.